Welcome to the Abbot Loop Community Church Podcast. For more information about Abbot Loop, visit abbotloop.org. Now we read this verse from the epistle of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll get right to it. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, I saw this cartoon, and I tried to find it, and I couldn't find it. I'll just describe it to you now. It's a cartoon about the man who wrote these words, Paul the Apostle. And the cartoon shows him on a boat coming to this city, the city of Ephesus. And he's coming close to the dock, and on the dock, he sees women. They're standing on the dock, and they're holding signs, woman hater, Paul unfair to women, etc., and Paul's on the boat saying, <laughs> I see you got my letter. <laughs> I'm going to tell you now what I sincerely thought and believed and understood about those words for a long time. And how I taught them in this church even, in that Bible school even, and how I tried to apply them in my role in this church. I really thought those words meant, and to me it was very clear, no women should ever teach men. No women should be in authority, ever. No women apostles, no women prophets. No women apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders. I really did believe that, and that's how I lived, and that's how I led. Now, we did see this in another epistle close by, the epistle of Titus, chapter 2. Teach the older women to be reverent, he told that man. And then verse 4, they can urge, it, it means teach, the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. All beautiful words, all great stuff. So we saw that as here's a women teaching role in the New Testament. So for many years, I was on the women's committee here at Abbott Loop with a bunch of my sisters, and we plan women's gatherings and conferences, and they were great, really. And we tried to fit all of that within these words here. So it says older women. And here's what began to happen right away. It began to be impractical and kind of awkward to actually apply these words in this church. It says older. So the question is, well, how older? How old should this woman be to be an older woman to teach? It doesn't give an age, and so we talked about that. How old must they be? And then the audience, it says they should be younger women. Now, we didn't actually do much about this. We never decided how young should they be to be on the receiving part of all this. I'm not trying to be silly. This is how it was. And, and we, so we didn't have like an age minimum or maximum to be on either side of this. And then what about the list down here? Is that all women can teach? Must it only be in those words? And what is a woman's subject anyway? And so that experience was working on me a little bit, and here's why. I always thought, I still believe that good teaching, good theology should be practical. It should work. It should produce good churches and good Christians. And so there was something kind of about this that wasn't quite working. Meanwhile, during these same years, God was bringing into my life all these really gifted women. And there's Dolores again, and she has awesome gifts. It's true. When she hugs you, it's like a spiritual experience. It's a ministry, and she doesn't know how valuable that is, but some of us do. And when she sings, it just comes out of her, and it touches people's hearts and lives, and it's a very spiritual thing. My, 
My wife is gifted in lots of ways. She has the gift of healing. I've seen her heal people, and she's a pretty good evangelist, and she's very good at uh, a word of knowledge for people. All these things are there, and I respect them all very much. Uh, the other ladies listed there, there are other places now. They're still in the world with us, different churches, different countries even. Judith Green, Barbara Brown, Mary Jill Callery, Deidre Broussard, Paula Tucker, Barb Cotton. I read that list. Some of you know these ladies, don't you? And I just think of their gifts, prophecy, intercession, Bible teaching. Mary Jill's a great missionary and networker in Europe and, and so on. And, and all these women, again, were great. Great attitudes, great character, great gifts. They just made Abbott Lou better. They made me better. And that was really working on side of me. And then during this same time period, I read this book, and I began to teach from this book. I've taught this book through, like, for a week, several times, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's a good book. I recommend it. You should get it. Uh, today, the title they gave me was Reading the Right Way. Well, this book is about that, How to Read the Bible the Right Way. Uh, Dr. Fee, one of the authors, is a great scholar and a great Pentecostal scholar and kind of a hero of mine. And he talks about the Bible. Anybody still have a paper Bible with you today? Come on. Guy said, if you got your Bible, give it a great big hug. Okay. Well, did you know the Bible is not just one book? It's one story. It tells one great story, the greatest story. But the Bible is actually a library of 66 books. And by the way, did you know in the front there's a table of contents? Have you ever seen this? It's not inspired, but it's valuable. It's there, right there. I'm looking at mine right now. And what happens is in this library of 66 books, there's all different kinds of writing, different kinds of literature. And in the book here, Dr. Fee calls it different genres. If you just read the Bible, you experience this, don't you? You start in Genesis. Great. Creation, the fall, the flood, these great Bible stories, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of those great stories. You get to Exodus, it's Moses and the Exodus and all that. And then it kind of changes, doesn't it? turns into laws, the Ten Commandments, and all the other commandments, and all the other laws, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's different. It's called law. Then it changes again. It becomes all these stories, like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all those, telling all these great Bible history stories. And then it changes again. It becomes what we now call poetry, like the book of Psalms, the heart of the Bible the songs and prayers of Israel. So beautiful. A whole different kind of literature, don't you know? And then it changes again, right? It becomes what we call the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and all those guys predicting the future, confronting Israel with their sin. Awesome. A whole bunch of the Bible. A whole different kind of reading, right? Then a great change comes. Jesus comes, and now we have the four Gospels. And a Gospel itself is a type of literature, written for a reason. And why are there four of them, by the way? Couldn't there just be one story of Jesus? But Jesus in quadraphonic. I like that. That's right. The Bible ends with the book of Revelation. We call this literature apocalyptic. It's all this figurative symbols and dreams and almost like nightmares of dragons and things in the sky, all these great things. Not meant to be understood literally. Impossible. It's like a God's graphic novel. And we try to understand, how does it apply through all the centuries of church history? Wow. So you have to look at each part of the Bible in different ways. That's how you read the Bible. 
the literal parts are meant to be taken literally. But many parts of the Bible are never meant to be taken literally, so we have to learn. And by the way, not just the people up here. Every believer has to learn how to read and understand and interpret the Bible for themselves in your life every day. Okay. So I skipped one, and one of them, this genre is called epistles. And if you look on your table of contents, there's actually 21 of them out of the 27 New Testament books are epistles. The word just means letters. Okay. And let's see if I can do them. Ready? If you know them, do them with me. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, don't forget him, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude. There you go. We did them. That's a lot. What's an epistle? An epistle is a letter written by men like Paul and John and Peter and Jude and the others, written to churches like places in like Rome and Ephesus and so on, uh, written to people like Timothy and Titus, who we've already seen. Sometimes they're kind of written to everyone. It's kind of general, they're called. Why were they written? They were almost all written for a reason. They were almost always written because of a situation. Usually the apostles were trying to fix something. It's fascinating to see how they responded and how they fixed things in the early church. Trying to fix usually bad teaching. That's right. Almost all the epistles were written in part to correct bad teaching by giving us good teaching. So we're thankful. Somebody said it's a good thing they had so many problems. We have all this great stuff they wrote and we can read it now. But there are other situations, too, like conflicts in the church, leadership problems, uh, persecution outside the church, how do we respond to that, and so on. Okay. This, the, in the book, Dr. Fee said, reading an epistle is like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. Who's ever tried to do that? Only all of us. We, Okay, you can call it eavesdropping if you want, but we've all tried to listen to one side of a conversation and figure out what's going on. Kind of like this. Wait for it. Hello? Hi, Dad. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll pray for you. I will tell him. Okay, bye. Okay. Who called me? Very good. <laughs> Was it good news or bad news? Maybe kind of bad. Why do you think that? Pray for him. I even said another word. Did you catch it? Yeah, very good. You're interpreting my phone call. <laughs> and you're doing it right so far. What was he calling about? You don't know enough, do you? You could maybe guess. What do you think it might be? Maybe. <laughs> I said I'm going to pray, so maybe he's sick. Okay. What am I, I going to do about it? I'm going to call somebody. So that's what happens. Now, some of you who know me more know that I have a dad and know that he calls me and, and so on. So that helped you interpret my side of the phone call, didn't it? That's right. Uh, by the way, he was calling to tell me he was sick and he couldn't make it to a pastor's lunch. And would I please call them and tell them he wasn't going to be there? Some of this you couldn't get, see? Reading an epistle is like what I just did. And our challenge is to take what we do have and try to figure out both sides of this conversation. And sometimes we can do it because of context and because of what we do know that's given to us. 
And sometimes we kind of have to guess a little bit, like you were just doing just there. Good job, by the way. You got most of it right. All the epistles are different. Now, I'm going to change the subject for a moment to show you this. I'm going to show you two lists that are in two of these epistles. One in the epistle of 1 Timothy 3 and this one in Titus chapter 1. Now, these are both lists of what we call qualifications for elders. Requirements to be an elder or an overseer in a local church. It's small, I know. Don't try to read it. It's just up there to kind of compare because here's what goes on. These two lists are very, very similar, but they're not the same. They're a little bit different. Watch, I'll show you. I figured it out for you. They're written by the same human author, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe that for all the epistles. Same subject, qualifications for elders. Same time period, very close in time. Similar recipients. These men, Timothy and Titus, were both leading local churches. Timothy was in a place called Ephesus, and Titus was in an island actually called Crete. But the two lists of qualifications for elders are different. Now, there are six items that are in both. So those must have been important in that way. But there are ten items only found in 1 Timothy 3 and 11 only found in Titus 1. You see what's going on here? He's saying, Timothy, this is the kind of elder you need. And Titus, this is the kind of elder you need. In other words, these were not rules for all churches even then. They were rules for that church and for that church. And why were they different? Different situations and different needs. It's true. Different problems, different challenges. So different kinds of elders. Could that mean that every church could have a list for the kind of elders we need now in this situation? It just might mean that. Many of us take these two lists and merge them together into one big super list. I suppose that's all right. But this little simple example points out that the epistles, even when they're similar, are not identical. It's not like a rule book. It's problem solving. It's troubleshooting. Sometimes it's called task theology, T-A-S-K, meaning the writers were doing this task of helping these churches and applying the theology in these real practical ways. I was trying to apply my own understanding of the Bible, and it wasn't working out very well. I was surrounded by these gifted women that were great Christians and great people, and that was really teaching me something. And then I was looking at the epistles a little better. I was reading better, and I'm sharing that with you now. All this led to this conclusion. I was changing inside. It's a strange thing when you're the pastor of a church and you find yourself possibly incompatible with your own church. And by the way, it doesn't mean everybody has to flip and now believe what this person believes. What's that? Some kind of a cult or something? I don't know. But for a while, I was the only one who knew this was going on inside of me. And I want you to know something. I wasn't looking for a change. I've been here my whole life. I knew good and well what this change meant in this church. Honestly, I'm in my heart going, oh, God, not this. <laughs> and I was not being pressured, not by the surrounding culture. I'm smart enough to see that. I wasn't being pressured by women. Frankly, if some woman pushed me, i just push back and say, you shouldn't push me. That's not appropriate. That wasn't happening. Another book I read called Deep Change 
said that deep change usually begins deep in the hearts of the key leaders, and then it begins to ripple out. The book says either you're going through deep change or slow death. And guess what? If you don't choose the deep change, guess what you have chosen? So I knew this was deep change, and I might be in deep trouble. This was about the year 2002. So here's what I did. Here's my narrative. I began to share with the other elders here at Abbott Loop. Brothers, I have to tell you something. Something's happening inside of me. I'm kind of changing. Began to share some of this with them. And so the decision was made for me to try to teach it. They said, why don't you go ahead and teach what you currently understand, and we'll listen, we'll all talk about it, and we'll see how it goes. So I put together a 10-part series of Bible messages called Men and Women, Men and Women Before the Fall, Men and Women in the Old Testament, Men and Women in the Gospels, and so on. I got up, this was in March and April of 2002, 15 years ago now. I got up to number seven, and the elders said, stop. We pushed the pause button. The elders said, we better stop and talk about this some more. And so we all did. I was very happy to do so. We had a year and a half of dialogue and Bible study and lots of meetings and discussions. And then we kind of came to a consensus. So then we pushed the play button, and I did my last two messages of my famous series in October of 2003. And what happened was we began changing, and we did. I remember the first lady ushered Abbott Loop. Yes, that was a thing. And by the way, she was great. And she was a great usher and had a great gift. I remember the first time a lady led worship up here. That was a thing for us, really. And then we ordained some people. We called it that. Sometimes they call it commission. Barbara Brown is a teacher. Sure. Mary Jill Callery, we commissioned her to be a minister as a missionary in Europe where she is. Paula Tucker and Bob got ordained as pastors on the same day. We sent them out together. That's right. All these things happen. And now it's coming around again, 15 years later. And so today, I'm humbly offering my little part of all this to support what I believe the Lord is doing. Now, I don't believe I'm a sexist. I believe that's a sin. To discriminate against women is wrong. It's actually illegal. I don't think it's in me. But I tell you now that I do very much regret how my understanding and my teaching hurt women and their gifts and their ministries. I repented for this in public during that series back then, and I mean that. We're doing this thing about breaking the glass ceiling, confronting the glass ceiling. I guess I would say it this way. I feel like the Lord broke a glass ceiling inside of me that I kind of didn't even know was there. And today I'm very grateful. So we'll put it back up there again. And maybe it'll look a little different this time. We'll see. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. First of all, the word assume authority, only, that word assume only appears one time in the Bible. It means to take authority. Uh, the Living Bible says to lord it over the men. King James Version said to usurp authority. Remember that? It's a strong word. Nobody should do that with authority. Now, first, we should read this correctly. How many times have you heard, doesn't the Bible say women shouldn't teach men? Your Bible never says those words. You know, we believe the Holy Spirit used Paul to write each and every word. So let's quote each and every word. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Let's get it right. Here's what I think was going on here. 
Timothy was written to help this pastor with the church in Ephesus and a big problem with false doctrine, heresy. 1 Timothy 1.5, you can read it. And in 1 Timothy, we learn, remember hearing one side of the phone call? We learn that there were women in the church being deceived by false doctrine and teaching. Four or five verses say this, women specifically, and maybe even a woman teacher. Paul is saying, I don't let a woman teach. It could be that what he was saying was, we're going to stop her. She's got to quit doing this. What was his solution? Stop the false teachers and teach the women. Verse 11. This is radical in the first century. We're going to teach all the women and all the men all the truth. The best remedy to heresy is the truth. So give them all mega doses of vitamin B. Amen. I believe, again, Paul was doing task theology. He was troubleshooting, fixing a problem in that church at that time. And I don't believe he was laying down laws for all churches for all times. Later, I'll show you how Paul spoke about women in another epistle. It almost seems like a different person. It's not a different person. It's a different situation. Now, compare this to some verses just above 1 Timothy. Watch this. Verse 8. I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. It, the word means males, the men, or the husbands. Now, today we prayed. We didn't make all the men lift up both hands. Come on, stick them up. It's in the Bible. Let's go. Now, many of us today were lifting our hands in worship and praise to God. Women, we didn't say, women, put them down. No, no, it's only men. Why not? Because we kind of know sort of intuitively that's kind of different now, isn't it? That was for them. This is for us. It's a little different. How about the next verse? Women dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls. At that door, as you came in, nobody had a checklist. Any jewelry today, ladies? Come on. Pearls. Got to go. Okay, I'm being silly but not sarcastic, I hope. No, but we, we know that somehow that was then, this is now. Why are we so not picky about these words and so very, very picky about the words that come just two verses later? Okay. Now, this was a very important point. I should have made it a slide, but I'll just say it now. It's not that the 21 New Testament epistles are irrelevant to us. They are relevant to us. How? How do we read them? The challenge is to understand what it all meant to them then and there, and then how it all applies to us here and now. How did these words 2,000 years ago, clear around the world, apply to us in Anchorage in 2017? They do. Mostly principles. I'll use that word. The specifics have changed. The world has changed. But the principles, in a way, do not change. Look at verse 8. What principles do we get from that verse? Humility, prayer, no anger. Those principles are good for us today in Anchorage, right? Amen. How about the principles in verse 9? Modesty, appropriateness, don't be materialistic. Those principles are good for us today. Thank you, ladies, for being modest and appropriate. Of course you are. Praise God. That's the idea. So I'll say it again. The challenge is to understand what it all meant to them back then and there, and then how it all applies to us in principles mostly here and now. And that's what we're doing, and that's how we believe we should read these epistles and apply them in our church today. I got a slide from my fellow long-term Abbott Loop 
community church members. I can't thank you enough for being faithful, for hanging in there, for being part of Abbott Loop through all the ups and downs and changes and seasons and just, frankly, for obeying the Lord and staying where he planted you. I just can't thank you enough for giving and serving and praying and just being faithful. What has gone on before us is why we're here today. The foundation that people have laid, many of them now in heaven today, is the foundation we build on today. It's so valuable. It's so precious. I just thank you with all my heart. I'm saying pray and think and talk about all this. Yes, we're going through it again. And we're thinking about it again. And it's okay if you don't agree. It's okay if you still believe 1 Timothy 2 means what I used to think it means. It is okay. Do I hope we'll all change together? Sure, but now I believe this too. Even though we don't agree, if we stay in relationship with one another, if we keep on loving each other in that kind of unity, it makes us stronger, actually, and it glorifies God more. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody anytime about all this stuff. You know that. I'm still a Bible geek. Love to talk about this anytime. Just call me. Some of you are thinking, Rick, you left one out. What about this other verse? Thanks for asking. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 14. <laughs> Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for women to speak in church. And by the way, the first one says women, plural. What about that one, Rick? Come back at 4 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> We're having a question and answer time. We'll talk about all this stuff today and last week, and, and we'll talk about that one, I promise. But you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, once again, the apostle was writing an epistle, trying to correct a situation in a church, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a law and a rule for all churches of all church history everywhere. But come back, and we'll talk about this one more, I promise. That's called a teaser. Romans 16, the end of an epistle. Same author, the Apostle Paul. Small print again, but I'll kind of summarize it for us. What he's doing in this epistle, by the way, this one is very general. Most of Romans is teaching, and less situational, you might say. The big situation in Romans is justification by faith and by grace and not by works of the law, of course. But he ends up very personal. He lists a lot of great friends. I'll just read some of them. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. My co-workers in Christ Jesus, they were like one word, Priscilla and Aquila. Sometimes it was Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Verse 6, greet Mary who worked very hard for you. Verse 7, the lady Junia there, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was. The twins, verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Wow. These women who work hard in the Lord. Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Rufus and her mother, his mother, who has been a mother to me too. There's more down below. Wow. No less than 11 ladies are mentioned here. Fellow workers, fellow prisoners, people that were there before him in Jesus, people with churches in their homes, servants, ministers, Oh, by the way, look at the last verse. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Did you know five times in the epistles, the Bible tells us to do that? To kiss each other. Now, I love Josh Tanner a lot, and I mean that. 
And I'm just thankful to God we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but what's the principle there? Love, brotherhood, fellowship. So when I see him, he sees me, we hug each other and we mean it. We love each other a lot. It's another example of that was then, this is now. But the principle is still with us today. Amen. Paul ended the epistle with this long list of greetings. I'll end this message with one more list. A lot of lists today. One more list of gifted women in our church right now who are powerful and free. Your name should be on top of this list. Joni Tanner is one gifted, awesome Christian in this church. And I'm sorry it's not up there. Mariah Anderson, so gifted. Touches me and feeds me and edifies me every time she teaches and preaches here. And it is like one word, Reed and Mariah. They are a team, and they are a gift to us, and thank God for their ministry in this church. Eleanor Roll, Nancy Winifred, Heather Rammert, a lady you're getting to know, Gretchen Humphrey. She'll be speaking here next Sunday on Mother's Day. Very gifted people, people of character. I'm leaving some out, and I hope that's okay. But we are blessed. Oh, Lee Sloan. Gifted teacher and communicator, we are blessed to have all of you in this church now. God is bringing this around again, my friends. Change is like that. He takes us through processes, and then he repeats them sometimes, and repeat, and repeat, and he's doing that. I'm just blessed. Whenever any of these gifted women, ministers, are commissioned or ordained or recognized, whatever we call it that day, I'll be there. My wife will be there too. We'll be laying hands on you with all of our hearts. I'm thankful for them and their ministries. I'm thankful to God, aren't you? I'm thankful for the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm thankful that God keeps changing us. You should never come to the place where you believe everything and you stop learning. None of us. While we're alive, while there's a pulse, go ahead, feel it right now. Is it still there? Sure. That means you're still teachable. God is still working on you and me. That's right. What does it call for? Humility and being teachable. And this balance. Lord, I really believe what I believe, but I want you to teach me in case I'm wrong. I want to keep learning. I'm thankful for God's grace. Thankful for how he changed me and how he taught me to receive all of them. Powerful and free. That's my story. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. Blessings on you all. I'm, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. Then Josh will come and close the service. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, we come to you in prayer. We're thankful for so many things. We're thankful for Jesus, most of all. Thank you that we're Christians. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the grace to keep on changing. You love us the way we are, and you love us so much you don't leave us the way we are. Thank you. I pray that you'll break all the glass ceilings inside of all of us, all the things you want to sweep away by your love and by your spirit. I pray for humility, for us to be teachable, to keep on learning from you. Thank you for your faithfulness through it all. It's all about you, God, and this great purpose you have. 
and how you spread out your gifts among your people and then you put people together in these combinations you call churches because you want to do something in this world and we want to be part of it. Thank you for including us. Help us to get it all together so your spirit can just flow through us and do these awesome God things that only you can do. That's all we want. And when it all happens, then we just stand back and say, yay, God, it's all about you. You're the only worthy one. And we just give it back to you in worship from you and through you and to you are all things. To God be the glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this message, please connect with us at abbotloop.org and like us on Facebook. Services in Anchorage, Alaska are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon.